Welcome to the Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast, the podcast we delve into the best teams not to win a title. I'm your host, Gen X Sports Geek, Peter Shaw, and I am joined once again for part two of the 1985 to 1989 Cleveland Browns story by my friend Jeff Gordon, not the stock car racer, but the labor lawyer. So let's get right into the 1987 playoffs, where we left off at the end of episode one. In the 87 playoffs, they hosted the Indianapolis Colts, who had made their first playoffs since ditching the Charm City for the Hoosier State in 84. These Colts won the AFC East with a flimsy 9-6 and record, but they had the best scoring D in the NFL. Yet they only had one pro bowler, which is interesting, Dwayne Pickett, who was one of their linebackers. And he was among a throng of talent that they drafted in both Baltimore and Indy. The Colts running back was Hall of Famer Eric Dickerson, he of the goggles, the jerry curl, and the very salty personality which led him to be traded from the LA Rams during that season. He was a punk. He was, but he was a a great, great running back. Phenomenal. Hall of Famer. SMU, the Pony Express. So he was an all-pro with almost 1,300 yards and six touchdowns gained between the two teams in the strike strike short year. The quarterback was the less famous and mediocre Jack Trudeau, who is of no relation to Gary Trudeau, the guy who created Gary <laughs> and later married news anchor Jane Pauley. He, he might have been, and you know, I'd be curious as to what your thoughts on this, the worst starting quarterback in a, in a playoff game in NFL history. He was not good. I know, but if he's listening, uh, Jack, sorry. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm, I guess I'm not sorry. A little, little hot take there. He, he, he know, wasn't bad okay. and he had a good game, and Peter's going to tell you all about it. <laughs> the, the Colts had beaten the Browns 9-7 to in a Week 13 snooze fest, so the Browns were just angry. They were not going to be very welcoming on the shores of Lake Erie. And on top of that, it was 5 degrees Fahrenheit with the wind chill that day, so the Brownies were 8-point favorites. The Browns drew first blood in that game. Biner got a touchdown reception from 10 yards out from Kozar. And then Trudeau came down and threw a nice pass to their tight end, Pat Beach, to tie it at 7. In the second quarter, Bernie hit a wide-open Foghorn Langhorn inside the five who fell very hard onto the Cleveland dirt but rolled into the end zone for a 39-yard touchdown. Time was winding down in the first half, and then the Colts decided to unleash Eric Dickerson. So he came out of the backfield as a receiver, which he didn't do that often, but he was able to outrun Clay Matthews, the linebacker, for an 18-yard touchdown catch and run to tie the game going into halftime. They actually stuffed him uh, running the ball. He did not have a big running game. I mean, he was the guy that was ripping off, you know, 100-plus yards almost every game. They, they, they definitely bottled him up running, but he did get that TD through the air. Exactly. He was able to uh, get, get some space. I don't really know what Marty said during his halftime speech, but the Browns came out just ready to just grind the Colts down into dust. They drove 12 plays on 84 yards to start the kickoff, and then Bernie handed off to Biner for a two-yard touchdown run to go up 21-14, as the, and that was the only score of the third quarter. Now the Browns got the ball back, and they drove to the five, but their drive stalled. They had to settle for Matt Barr, one of the Barr brothers that Jeff alluded to earlier, for a 22-yard field goal. So they were up 24-14 in the fourth quarter. They held the Colts and were driving again when they lined up on, on the Colts' 47-yard line on a third and short. Biner broke through the right side of the line and was flying down the field when a Colt defensive back came up behind him and punched the ball out of his hands at the 19-yard line. Now, the ball squirted forward, and I'm sure all of Cleveland stopped breathing for a second, but they inhaled when Herman Fontenot came back and made another cameo and fell on the ball as he was trailing the play. And he fell on it at the Indianapolis five-yard line. The bad history of fumbles by the uh, Browns in the playoffs that it would haunt them. Yes. um, But thankfully, you know, Fontenot was trailing the play. He didn't give up and he fell on the ball. Soon after, Bernie hit uh, Brian Brennan on a fade in the back of the end zone. So they were up 31 to 14 in the fourth quarter. The Colts, being led by Trudeau, give them a little bit of credit. They they kept fighting. They drove down to the Browns five and they capped it uh, with minute 12 left, and they capped it off with a Curtis Bentley diving touchdown. They were down 31-21. And then they recovered the onside kick. So the Browns fans started to set up in their seat, like, ooh. But thankfully, the Browns turned up the pressure and sacked. Um, Trudeau got knocked out, so they brought in Gary Hogaboom, who also played for the Cowboys and was known as Hogabum by my Cowboy fan friends. He wasn't good either. No, he wasn't. <laughs> I've got uh, Trudeau in the Hall of Fame before I've got Hogamum uh, starting it. Yeah. So they were they were fourth and 19, down by 10, 
as time was winding down and Hogaboom dropped back and let it fly into double coverage. Now, you were taught to knock down the ball, but Minifield kind of showboated it. He intercepted and returned it 48 yards for a touchdown and put icing on the cake, and the game ended 38-21 to Browns, and the Brownies were off to the AFC Championship against the Denver Broncos. Minifield, uh, Minifield had a ton of picks that year. He had a game where he had three. I think he, had, he might have had double-digit interceptions. You had to stick him like the receiver. Yeah, he, he was. He was. He, was, he, was, <laughs> he was catch amazing. the ball. I don't even think he could bat it down. He probably stick to it. But. Yeah. So suffice it to say, this was not the weekend at Bernie's. The Colts had in mind by Bernie. Yeah. It was a tough place to play. Cleveland. Cleveland in the playoffs in the mid late eighties, especially in those days, it was like this. They went on to the AFC Championship. And this was being played in a flip script at Denver's Mile High Stadium. So that day, as opposed to Cleveland when it was cloudy and cold, this was sunny and cool, just like the home team liked it. Broncos still led by Elway. Kozar threw a pass in over the middle in his own 20, which was deflected a few times, ricocheted off people like a pinball until a defensive lineman from Denver caught it, fell to the ground, and using a very short field, Elway threw a pass to former Florida Gator Ricky Nutile to go up 7-0. And the Browns took the ensuing kickoff, drove over the 50, but big Kevin Mack, as was to earlier, was stripped of the ball while trying to get an extra yard. There we go. On first down. And Denver took the ball down the field in L.A. through an incompletion on third and goal. But wait, the Browns were cold for defensive holding. So Denver had the ball first and goal at the one. And they had a little trick out of their bag of tricks. And they ran a reverse to Steve Sewell, who cruised around the left corner of the end zone untouched. And the Broncos were up 14-0 in the first quarter. Now, the Browns did not lose faith, and they chipped away at the lead. Barr hit a field goal, but the Broncos put up another touchdown, a short touchdown run by Gene Lang, and now the, the Broncos were up 21-3 to at home. There was actually – there was a third turnover. Brian Brennan caught a pass, and this was like late in the first half. It was around the 50-yard line, and they were driving. They could have cut it to like 21-10. Boy, again, I, I don't want to sit there and talk about, you know, Carlos's missed field goal, but Brennan's knee was clearly down. And uh-huh. like no replay, it kind of gets stripped out and um, stops a big drive that maybe would have kept him in the game. Enberg and Olsen were like, clearly his knee was down. It was yeah, not yeah. Instant replay would have helped the Browns this year. Yes, yes. Yeah, so the Browns actually, they had it. They had, uh, so the, the Kozar got the ball back. He ran a very efficient two-minute drill. And right before the half, they set up Barr for a 45-yard field goal attempt. But he sliced it to the right, much like every golf shot I ever hit off the team. <laughs> and they missed it. They were down 21-3 at the half after those costly turnovers on the road. So surely the Browns were dead. But not so fast. In the third quarter, the Browns intercepted Elway very early. Kozar and the Brownies marched on down the field. Bernie was getting rushed Though he wasn't the most mobile, he was able to get away, and he threw an 18-yard strike to Foghorn Langhorn to cut the lead to 21-10. to On the next Bronco drive, Elway did some amazing stuff. It was third and 10. He dropped back and got flushed out of the pocket and rolled right. He threw a short comeback pass to speedy wide receiver Mark Jackson on the sidelines. What happened next was another heartbreaker for the Browns fans watching. He spun around, much like Michael Jackson can do, he broke two tackles, got a great block, and sprinted down the sideline for an 80-yard touchdown run. Elway got credit for the 80 yards, but mostly it was about 75 of yards after the catch. Jackson did all the lead work, but no, no matter how you dissect it, the Broncos were back in command 28-10. Not a yak on that one. Oof, yeah. <laughs> so seven minutes left in the third quarter, the Browns struck back. Kozar did a little bit of scrambling of his own, and... At the Denver, he was at the Denver 32, dropped back and put a soft pass over the linebackers into the arms of Biner, who ran untouched into the end zone. So now the Browns felt like they had a little bit of life. They were only down 28 to 17. Where's a punt on the ensuing after the ensuing kickoff? And Kozar took them down the field again, capping off a drive with a four-yard touchdown run by Biner as the third quarter went down. Now the Broncos did were able to strike back, and Carlos got another field goal. So it was 31-24 Denver going into the fourth quarter. So the Browns still were within striking distance. And they refused to go quietly into that Denver night or afternoon. The Browns marched down the field again and tied the score on a four-yard pass from Bernie to Webster Slaughter. And just in case you're wondering, he's of no relation to Sergeant Slaughter. 
of professional wrestling fame, in case you were wondering. I didn't mention that earlier. So now the game was tied at 31 in the fourth quarter. And, you know, L.A. was just, it was almost like a bad movie. L.A. just wanted the Browns just to go away. He thought he killed them, and they kept coming back, much like Michael Myers in the first Halloween movie and the second Halloween movie. He took the Broncos on another long drive, and with around four minutes left, hit Sammy Winder on a swing pass on, from 20 yards out. And Winder just broke through a tackle, broke through a second tackle. And I think the Browns defenders were just tired and cold at that point. And Winder cruised into the end zone, and Mile High went insane. This was a, kind of a recurring theme in the second half. There were, I mean, and Mark Jackson did have a nice play on that 80-yard touchdown. I'm not saying he didn't, but there were a lot of missed tackles. The rest is history, as, as you'll tell us. Exactly. So Bernie, Bernie came off the bench and said, all right, We got the ball back down by seven and he wanted to orchestrate another tie and take this, take this game to OT where the Browns, as we know, like to operate in the playoffs. So he was still executing well and they moved down the field with a combo of short passes. And though they were expected to pass all the time, they kept handing off to Mack and Biner. So the Broncos were unaware and they were finding big holes. And by that point in the game, Biner already had two touchdowns, 60 yards rushing, 120 yards receiving. So dude was having a day. Kozar dropped back at the Broncos 13 and tried to hit him with a pass at the back of the end zone, but the ball sailed high. Set the stage. It's a minute 14 left. The Browns had second and five from the Broncos eight-yard line down by seven. Biner was the lone setback for Bernie, and the wide receivers were all set wide, as their name would apply, to spread the D out. So Bernie snapped the ball and handed off directly to Biner, who ran a trap play and cut through a big hole over left tackle. At the four, he was one-on-one with defensive back Jeremiah Castile, who he juked out of, his, out of his socks and cut inside to the right to get the first down and maybe get into the end zone. But as Bino ran past him, he was holding the ball in his left hand, which was the hand closest to the defender. So Castile was beaten, reached, but reached behind him and stripped the ball from Biner as he got to the three-yard line. Now, Biner barreled ahead and into the end zone, and dragged a defensive back in with him. And for a split second, it looked like he scored, but he no longer had the ball. Everybody watching that game in in the room I was in and across the entire state thought he had scored. Dick Enberg and Merlin Olsen, man, best team in uh, broadcasting team in the 80s, I think. I like them more than uh, Summer on Madden, but that's just me. I agree. I'm with you there. I'm with you. I'm in the minority. You might be with me. (laughs) Yeah, no, I like that NBC team. But so in real time, it looked like he scored for a second. Oh my gosh. But what I did, I got on a YouTube and I slowed that thing down like it was a Zapruder film. I was able to reconstruct and I watched the exact second that the ball got stripped out and, and the entire population of Cleveland had their hearts broken. So I watched it at 25% speed. And another benefit of that, it sounded like Dick Enberg like just took a hit of Freon. <laughs> he had a smooth. He was smooth. He was, and but at twenty-five percent, twenty-five percent speed, he sounded wasted. <laughs> what happened in real time is that Castile actually fell on the fumble that he caused on the three, and it sealed the fate of the Browns. The Broncos knelt on the ball, and then they still had a little time to kill. So on on fourth down, the puncher ran out the back of the end zone to give the Brownies a safety. But the Broncos prevailed 38-33. to 33. And I always, I'll remember the footage both when I watched it live and I watched the replay of the game. Ernest Biner sitting sadly on his helmet by himself on the sideline. A forlorn shot. I know. Poor guy. Uh, just, just felt terrible for the Heartbreaking. guy. It was a rough one. I know. But both quarterbacks had a great game statistically. Bernie a little better. Bernie at 356 yards, three touchdowns, one interception. But we know almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. And all the Browns' aspirations blew up like a hand grenade at that three-yard line in Mile High Stadium. Now, the Broncos went on to play the team formerly known as the Washington Redskins, now the Washington football team, in the Super Bowl at the Murph, later known as Qualcomm Stadium and more recently raised, and is now Rubble in San Diego. The Broncos in that game came out hot, and they led 10-0 after the first quarter after a long pass from Elway to Nateel and a Carlos field goal. And not to get too much into it, but what happened in the second quarter is the stuff of legend. Former Buccaneers starting quarterback Doug Williams threw for four touchdowns in the second quarter alone. And some flash in the pan backup running back named Timmy Smith 
ran for 204 yards and two touchdowns. On one hit wonder, the, the, the start of the one hit wonder Super Bowl champs. And so Doug Williams was the MVP. The Broncos did not score again. So the final score was Washington 42, Denver 10. And who knows, maybe the Browns would not have uh, lost that badly. I'd like to think the Browns would have given a better. Well, this one, I mean, the, the, this one in terms of from a perspective of a Browns fan, this was definitely a source of frustration. But it was sort of egg in their face because they, they felt like, man, okay, we lost to this team, but they're the best team. They're going to win the Super Bowl. And for them to just get embarrassed in the Super yeah. Bowl was just more sort of like, it was like twisting the dagger in the back. Exactly. You know, was, He comes and kills us. And then he like lays an egg and looks like a total schmuck. I know. And that was that. That was the season, man. It was. I was cheering for the Browns in that one big time, and that was a that was a tough one for for a lot of people. All right. So the Browns still had some had some gas left in the tank. So move on to '88. In the draft, they did get a one gem. They got Michael Dean Perry, a defensive lineman out of Clemson, who was William the Refrigerator Perry's younger brother. He was smaller. By small, I mean 6'1", 285. But he was actually a much better player in the NFL, though he didn't have as much fame as his brother. Marty was still the coach. He still had those thick glasses, still looked very intense on the sidelines. Defense was stout all year. They added Michael Dean Perry, as I mentioned. Their offense, however, took a few steps back. Kozar got dinged up a bit, did go 6-3 and three in his starts. Their backup quarterbacks were Mike Everything Pagel. I made that one up myself. And super sub, Don <laughs> and also Gary Danielson. Now, 38-year-old Don Strzok was in his last season, and he won both of his starts that year. And in my, in my mind, he should be the patron saint of backup quarterbacks, even though he never played for a team I liked. <laughs> Shockingly, they didn't run Biner or Mac out of town after they you know, both had their disappointments. Mm-hmm. But they split carries evenly throughout the year. And they still had blocking stud Tim Manoa. So the core and the wide receivers were pretty much the same. And they, but they won 10 games and they qualified as a wild card. Now that year, Cincinnati won the AFC Central with a 12-4 and four record. And both the Browns and the Oilers made the playoffs. So imagine a year where the AFC Central, now the AFC North, three out of four teams make the playoffs and one was not the Steelers. Yeah, well, the Bengals that year, I mean, that's the year they ended up going to the Super Bowl. Right. These Brownies won five, four of the last five games, and they finished strong, and they swept the Steelers, something that hasn't happened since. And they went into the playoffs. Now, on Christmas Eve of the 88 playoffs, they hosted the Houston Oilers in the wild card game. And both teams had 10 and 6 records that year, but they won the tiebreaker, grabbing a better divisional record. And the season finale, they did beat Houston 28-23. to So we were hoping they had some momentum. Those Houston Oilers were coached by Elvis fan Jerry Glanville. Their secondary coach was some guy named Nick Saban, who would later go on to coach the Dolphins. He is an athletic spokesman and a pretty decent college coach at Alabama and LSU and Michigan State, you might say. Nah. We're not going to get too much on that guy. Their quarterback was CFL legend Warren Moon, who led the high-scoring Oiler offense, which was the second best in the NFL that year. Their main running back was Heisman Trophy winner Mike Rozier, who ran for 1,000 yards and 10 TDs for his best year in the pros, hands down, even including his 1984 season with the USFL Pittsburgh Maulers. Other running backs on the team were bruiser Alonzo Highsmith, Alan Pinkett, no relation to Jada. And um, both of those really contributed heavily to the running game. And the receiving core was really solid. They had Drew Hill, who was lightning fast, Irvin Gitt, Ernest Gibbons, who was super quick. And those two combined for 2,000 yards and 15 TDs. So this was a really good offensive team that the Brown would have to deal with. Weather was cold, it was wet and windy. In other words, it was Cleveland winter. Unfortunately for the Brownies, Kozar had an injured knee, so they went with Don Strock at QB, who made his first playoff start. Fortunately for the Browns, they started the game off on the right foot. They picked off Warren Moon and converted to a bar field goal to go up 3-0 after the first quarter. The Oilers, even though they played in a dome, were pretty much undaunted by the bad weather. You must remember that Warren Moon went to University of Washington, where the weather's not always great, and he cut his teeth playing pro ball in Canada for the Edmonton Eskimos. But he, so he played in Canada before he went to the climate-controlled Astrodome, so he kind of knew how to play in the crappy weather. So Warren Moon took him down the field and uh, dumped off a pass to Pinkett, who broke a few tackles and scored from 14 yards out. Things started to get worse for the Browns. Don Strzok dropped back, and he fumbled, uh, he fumbled the snap on the next drive. 
and trying to recover it, he sprained his wrist, so he had to come out. Make things worse, the Oilers actually recovered the ball at the Browns 16, and on their first play, Moon handed off to Pinky to run in for a touchdown. You're watching this game, and it, it was, I think you alluded to it, uh, just different people getting hurt. It was a bloodbath. Lots yeah. of people going down. And, and uh, I mean, I blew out my knee and got a concussion just watching this game. I was like, <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> it was ridiculous it's, again. It's painful. And both teams hit pretty hard on top of that because it's a tough division. So they brought in third-string quarterback Mike Pagel, who would also play for the Colts. Everything Pagel. Uh, I hope he hears this and, and likes that nickname I came up with him. So Pagel himself, he was recovering from a separated shoulder, which kept him out two months. And I can assure you, having separated my shoulder four times, it hurts. He came in for Strzok. He kept his cool, led the Browns on two drives in that quarter, but both stalled inside the 20, and they had to settle for six more points off of Matt Barr's instep. At the half, it was only 14-9 to nine Oilers. So you're on your third-string quarterback, and most of your players are getting dragged off the field, and you're only down by five at the half. That's not too bad a place to be. In the third quarter, Pagel came out and he drove the team and he hit Slaughter on a 14-yard pass where Slaughter was completely open. It was like the Oilers forgot that they had to cover that guy. And the Browns all of a sudden were ahead 16-14 to heading into the fourth quarter. The game was ugly with a lot of penalties and both offenses started to sputter. But Moon, Moon and the Oilers were able to muster a 76-yard scoring drive culminating in a one-yard Lorenzo White touchdown. And the Oilers took the lead 21-16. to Now give Pagel credit. He tried to rally the Browns, but he threw his only interception of the game to Richard Johnson, which set up a 49-yard field goal by Tony Zendejas into the stir- swirling winds off of Lake Erie to put the Oilers up 28-16. to Pagel still got himself off the mat, and him and the Browns were able to drive 70 yards to the two with 31 seconds left, and Pagel hit Slaughter for a second touchdown to cut the lead to two. Now, sadly for the Browns, there was no two-point conversion option at that time because it wasn't adopted until 1994. So they had to kick the extra point. I forgot that. Like, I, when I it was looking over the yeah. I didn't realize that it was the situation. I mean, that, again, that's another thing that totally changes the dynamic of a game. I mean, that, right. right there, they had no chance. Right. Yeah. So, they were, so they kicked the extra point, and they were down 24 to 23. So they had to try an onside kick, which, as usually happens, they did not recover it. The Oilers fell on it and ran out the clock. So the season was over for the Browns. It was a gutsy effort, though. Third-string quarterback. Yeah. Everything was, uh, was up to the task. I mean, <laughs> yeah, did, uh, give, give him a lot of credit. That's, that's pretty impressive for a third-stringer. So, Pagel, you're getting props. Yeah, I'll give him some love. Okay. Now, these Oilers would go on to lose to the Bills by 17-14 to 14 the next week. Back in Cleveland, the Marty Ball era ended because Schottenheimer was fired and replaced by Bud Carson, the former defensive coordinator from, for the Jets, Chiefs, Colts, Rams, and Steelers. So this guy knew how to coach the D. I remember, in, again, in, in Ohio, that was very controversial. I mean, they had had a, a string of four straight playoff seasons. He went 10-6 and six that year. Um, I mean, they lost a playoff game, and, and it was a wild card game. Right. But it was a third-string quarterback. I mean, it was hard to find, like, yeah, a lot you of – you, you can't blame Marty for that. But it wasn't because the play on the field had suffered. It was just, I think, his message maybe was getting a little old. But it was pretty controversial. They were like, how do you fire this guy? I mean, he's, he's been, like, the, the best coach. I mean, he mentioned Sam Rotigliano, but Rotigliano yeah, didn't have anywhere near that level. No, of he was, yeah, Marty was definitely the most successful coach. Yeah. So they, got, so. they got rid of him. And Bud Carson was the leader starting off of the 89 season. Yep. And now for a short break. This podcast is brought to you by Cigar City Brewing. At Cigar City Brewing, we make the beer we like to drink and toast those who choose to drink with us. Whether it's the full flavor of High Lie IPA or the lighter-bodied High Low IPA, Cigar City Brewing has you covered for any occasion that calls for handcrafted beer. Find out more at CigarCityBrewing.com. Cigar City Brewing, Tampa, Florida. Please enjoy responsibly. Now back to the podcast. The year started off with a bang. They beat the Steelers 51 to nothing in the season opener. In addition to the offense clicking, they had three defensive returns for touchdowns, two fumbles, and an interception. I can't imagine a more depressing day in Pittsburgh when you lose to the Browns 51 nothing. D-line was, was probably something that Bud Carson dreamed about. He had Michael Dean Perry, 
He had former Lions sack specialist Al Bubba Baker. He had Carl Harrison. He had Robert Banks. They would they could sack the quarterback. They still had Dixon and Minifield prowling around. Clay Matthews was still making the Pro Bowl as a linebacker, and Mike Johnson was a solid linebacker. And together, under Bud Carson's leadership, they let up the fourth lowest points per game in the NFL. Bernie was still the quarterback, 18 touchdowns, 14 interceptions, 3,400 yards, so a real solid year. Now, Ernest Biner was no longer with the team. Kevin Mack played sparingly because of injuries. But the Browns did draft a very versatile running back out of Texas named Eric Metcalf. That was sort of the end of that era. I mean, in addition to Schottenheimer going, they, yeah. they had that for about four, three or four years, that whole dual backfield, which was pretty rare. I mean, teams still had fullbacks back then, but they weren't getting 150, 200 carries yeah. like Mac was. And they did that for four straight years. I mean, they had literally like an even share in the backfield between two really good running backs. So that was sort of the end of the era, uh, not only a Schottenheimer era, but the era where they had dual rushing attack that was really dangerous and pretty unique at the time. They had Metcalf, who was a great receiver, running back, return guy. They had the wide receiver core, which was pretty much the same. And with this lineup and a new coach, they went 9-6-1 and one, and won the Central by a half a game over the Oilers. So and they were still good. Yeah. Were, so into the 89 playoffs they go, into the divisional round. And they hosted the ascending Buffalo Bills. These Bills had really built quite an offensive arsenal, which was just starting to pick up steam. They scored the third most points in the NFL behind Jim Kelly, a Western PA guy who went down like Cozart to the U, started the, in the USFL for the Houston Gamblers, and he was backed up by super sub Frank Reich. Another great uh, backup quarterback. Yeah, you put him up yeah, there with Tomzak and Strzok. He's up there with Strzok. And he led the, they led the Bills to a 9-7 and seven record, which was good enough for first place in the mediocre AFC East. They had former Oklahoma State running back Thurman Thomas, who was a dual threat. He scored six touchdowns in the air as a receiver, scored six touchdowns on the ground, ran for 1,200 yards, 600 yards receiving. So he was everywhere. Their top receiver was Hall of, now Hall of Famer, Kutztown State's own Andre Reed. He caught 88 balls, 1,300 yards, nine touchdowns. Don Beebe was a, was a great complimentary possession receiver. And they had big tight end Pete Metzelars. It seems like Buffalo always had a big, beefy tight end to catch a couple balls um, when no one else was open. So their kicker was some guy named Scott Norwood. We're not going to really harbor on that guy. They had a superb D in a lot of positions. It was anchored by Hall of, future Hall of Famer Bruce Smith. They had linebackers Cornelius Bennett and Daryl Talley. He of the yeah, this, tail. This was really the beginning of, of right. that Bills sort of coming out party. And they, they had so many great players on the team. I mean, this was part of their kind of – they were starting to, to, to roll at this point. But yeah, they, I think they, they were did. really good. They were just a couple years away. Right. And they are, they are the subject of a future – I was going to say – Sports guys, obviously. They might be – Patron saints of the close but no cigar. So, yeah, in the 90s, they took over where the uh, Broncos of the 80s left off. Exactly. Opening game of the 89 playoffs of the Browns, what I like to call the Rust Belt Rumble. And the Browns got the kickoff, and they came down the field very, very efficiently, but they're, they stalled, and Barr got a field goal attempt, which sailed right. The Bills were also fast out of the gates, and – Andre Reed got hit on a slant pattern at the Buffalo 35. He cut up field, split the defenders, and ran all the way to the end zone. And before the uh, Browns knew what they were doing, it was a 72-yard touchdown pass, and they were down 7 to nothing. The Browns came back uh, on another drive, and Matt Barr this time hit the field goal from 45 yards out, and they were down 7-3. to three. The Browns deep held firm, got the ball back, Bernie threw a deep ball to Webster Slaughter, which is a 52-yard bomb over defensive back Nate Odom, who was scorched by Webster Slaughter. Sweet little double move, much like the moves my brother used to put on David Goldstein in playing football in our front yard in elementary school. So the Browns were up 10-7. to Kim's getting some serious love, by the way. Hopefully he's listening to this podcast. He, he but first will. you put him in the Hall of Fame, and now you're uh, reliving his glories from the front yard. Exactly. <laughs> he deserves all the Capical, love he right? They were up 10-7 Browns. Uh, Jim Kelly was not to be outdone. He drove the Bills back down the field. 
and the Browns were giving him all day. So Kelly took this time, and from 33 yards out, he dropped back what seemed like a few minutes after he snapped the ball, and he hit James Lofton for a touchdown after he was able to break free from coverage. So the Bills were up 14-10. They started, now the Browns came back and started to give it to Kevin Mack every other play, and behind him and our, our Bernie Kozar, the Browns came right back down the field, and as the second quarter wound down, they were deep in uh, Buffalo territory. And from the three, Bernie executed a perfect play action fake, and he'll seldom use tight end Ron Middleton for a touchdown in the back of the end zone. A great catch, by the way. That was, that was out really of nowhere. a great catch. Yeah, I but, watched that one. I was like, damn, nice hands. Yeah, for, exactly. Good for hands for a big, big man. Lumbering tight end who never caught the ball all season. <laughs> Exactly, but by, but I mean by seldom used, I mean the guy caught one freaking five yard pass all year, but that too was for a touchdown. So for him, it's all about quality and not quantity. And at halftime, it was seventeen fourteen Browns. So early in the third, Kelly threw a floating duck of an interception, and the Browns capitalized. And Bernie hit Slaughter on a long pass, where the Bills once again seemed to forget he was there. As inexcusably bad, I know. But so the Browns were up 24 to 14. Bills got the ball back and Bills running back Kinnebrew, their fullback fumbled the ball over to the Browns on the next drive. And the Browns were excited to put the Bills away, but then Mac fumbled. So they couldn't actually do that. Common theme. The Mac fumble. I know. So the Bills decided to actually protect the ball and they started to pass and run all Thurman Thomas. And they went down to the Cleveland 10. Now at that point, Thurman came out of the backfield, and Kelly hit him for a touchdown to cut the lead back to three. And Bills coach Marv Levy was pumped on the sidelines. Little name drop, Marv Levy and I lived in the same apartment building for one year in Chicago when he was a sportscaster for CBS. But uh, aside from riding the elevator up with him one day, didn't really hang out with him too much. His joy was short-lived because super rookie Eric Metcalf took the ensuing kickoff and returned it 90 yards for a touchdown. Truly was an electric play, and the lead was back up to 10 for the Browns going into the fourth quarter. Bills, once again, went back to the uh, healthy diet of dump-offs to Thurman Thomas, who finished actually with 150 yards receiving for the day, which is spectacular for a running back. Now, they went all the way down to the Browns' 13 and had to settle for a Scott Norwood field goal, which was answered by the Browns coming back down and put down a they put, they put together a 12-play time-consuming drive capped by their own field goal, and they were at back up by 10. If your head is starting to spin, it was 34-24 to 24 Browns at that point. And time was running out on the Bills. Now the Bills, once again, dinked and dunked their way down the field, and uh, Thurman got hit for another touchdown from three yards out, but the amped-up special teams of the Browns blocked the extra point to go up 34 to 30. The Browns could not grind down the clock. The Bills got the ball back with under four minutes. They moved it all the way down to his fourth and 10 from their own 41. And Kelly dropped back and scrambled a bit. And then he found Don Beebe over the middle for a first down at the Browns 42, which is always deflating. He converted another fourth down this time, fourth and one down uh, at the Browns 23 yard line. When he hit Reed cutting on an underneath slant, Yet 30 seconds remain. He decided to drop back again and look for Thomas, who seemed to always be open, on a first down. And he hit him, and he ran down to the 11-yard line and spiked the ball with 14 seconds left. And the Browns were only up by four. So the Bills had to get into the end zone. Was Pittsburgh-born Kelly about to crush Cleveland's dreams? That is the question being asked by everybody watching. And Kelly dropped back, lofted a pass to the left corner of the end zone, where it bounced off of the fingertips of normally sure-handed and run back Ronnie Harmon, who was actually open. Nine seconds left. On third down, Kelly dropped back again, tried to zip it over the middle of the end zone where there was a lot of traffic, and it was intercepted by Clay Matthews at the one-yard line, who dropped to his knees and the whole city of Cleveland and every occupant of Municipal Stadium could allow a collective sigh of relief. And the Browns were going back to the AFC Championship for the f- third time in four years. That was a big, big win for a couple reasons. I mean, the year before they had, had flamed out, they'd fired their coach. Um, They're playing a team that was that was definitely good. Um, you had a name for the game. I can't remember. They, I, I watched the uh, the highlights of it again. They were calling the it Rust- the 
the Rust in, Belt Rumble. Oh, the Rust Belt Rumble. They called it the duel in the dirt at NFL Films. Either one works, man. Because the field was – there wasn't any blades of grass apparent at all. No. But, no, it was a gutsy win. And, and Clay Matthews had been a long time – Matthews on defense and Ozzy on offense were, like, the ones who'd been there forever. And exactly. um, for him to get that pick – kind of falls to his knees in this sort of like, you know, pose of, of joy. Um, that was a, a great win for them and, you know, would turn out to be, I think, their last playoff win since uh, until last week. <laughs> I believe they went 30-plus years after this game and not winning another playoff game. That is true. That but is I guess true. that's a spoiler alert for the next yeah. game. Sorry. Exactly. That's okay. So their opponent for the third time in four years was the Denver Broncos who actually barely beat the Steelers 24-23 in Mile High Stadium the day after the Browns beat the Bills. To quote Star Trek villain Khan, revenge is a dish best served cold. Unfortunately for the Browns, the AFC Championship game was played a mile high, and it was only 47 degrees Fahrenheit and sunny, so they would have to just have a chilly day rather than a cold day. And remember, Denver is the sunshine state. It's gorgeous. So Ricardo Montalban was uh, devastated by the sunny weather. <laughs> so the Broncos still were the Browns' nemesis. You still had John Elway, who was spreading the ball all over the field. The D was still anchored by Carl Mecklenburg, who was an all-pro. And Denver came in and just out of the gates, dominated early. They were up 10 nothing at the half on a David Treadwell field goal and a Bernie Kosar interception, which got converted into a touchdown on a 70-yard pass from Elway to backup wide receiver Mike Young. Before Kozar's interception was a drop pass by normally reliable Reggie Langhorn deep in Denver territory. So, you know, bad, the domino bad, effect, you drop a pass and the next one gets picked off. Yeah, it was a bad pick, too. He overthrew his receiver by, like, yeah. 10 yards. It was not good, but that was, that was coming off of a, a bad drop that should have been a touchdown. So oh. the Browns went into halftime down 10-0, and they were mad as hell, and they weren't going to take it anymore. So that, now their bodies were adjusted to high Denver altitude, and Bernie came out slinging. So early in the third quarter, he lofted a, an absolutely beautiful 27-yard pass to Brian Brennan behind the Denver secondary, and he caught it for the touchdown, and it was his first touchdown of the whole season. So good on you, Brian. 10-7 Broncos. Now, El, Elway was still feeling it as well, so he took the Broncos right down the field with a lot of precision passes, another big one to Mike Young and finished off the drive with a five-yard fade to the very beefy tight end Orson Mobley, an immense human being if ever there was one in tight end. And the Broncos were back in command 17-7. The Brownies had a punt. Elway got the ball back. Elway used his bow legs to scramble for a 25-yard run, which eventually set up Sammy Winder's five-yard touchdown dive in the left corner. 24 to 7 in the third quarter Broncos. Elway was killing them uh, yeah. just as an athlete in this game. His scrambles, legs were, and arms. Yes, one of those ones where you know you you got him in third and long or whatever and he just breaks off one of these 20-yard backbreakers. He was definitely the star of this game. I remember that yeah. vividly. He was just and and Bernie who was never particularly mobile at, to start with as the years went by you know, when he was 26, 27, 28 even, which is what he wasn't this time, he was like walking around like a like a 50-year-old plus man. I mean, he, he was not – he did you not mean move. Like, you mean like me? Yeah, I was – well, <laughs> like us. <laughs> Just – he was – he was uh, – um, you know, it was weird. He kind of was like a Philip Rivers type, you know, like he – just not yeah. mobile, strange way to throw the ball but got it done. But, you know, appearance yeah. or, or movement of a – of a graceful thing. He could not make things happen on the run. No. <laughs> so, but, right, he still was effective. Yeah. So they're down 24-7 in the third quarter. The third quarter starting to wind down. He took the Browns on a big drive. He ended up hitting Brian Brennan again for a 10-yard touchdown on a really spectacular drive, diving catch. He was money in the playoffs. It's one of the ones that you just imagine yourself making as a little kid in the backyard you're thinking of yourself in the NFL. So he caught two touchdowns all year, and they might as well be in the AFC Championship game. Right? That's, That's quality our- over quantity. At the start of the Broncos' next drive, the Browns decided to flip the script on the Broncos, and they handed off uh, – Helway handed off to running back Mel Bratton. He ran around the, off the right tackle, but he got stripped as he hit the ground, and the ball popped up right into Felix Wright's 
hands, defensive back for the Browns. I'd like to call him Fields the Cat. And he pulled out his bag of tricks, returned the ball 27 yards to the Denver one-yard line. He actually was their big big play man all year. Felix had nine interceptions on the year, but I don't think his nickname was Felix the Cat. I don't remember. It, w- it should yeah. have been if it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. So the Browns, and they lost a yard on the next play, but they cut, they cut the lead to 24 to 21. When they, when they handed off to big man Tim Manoa, who's actually born in Tonga and went to Penn State, he went up the gut for a two-yard smashing touchdown, and they were down by three. The Browns had actually put together two touchdowns in two minutes, and it gave them a little bit of hope. Manoa actually had the biggest set of shoulder pads outside of Christian Okoye, the Nigerian oh, nightmare. His, his right. shoulder pads were like... He just made him look like he was a 400-pound man. <laughs> Looked like an uh, NHL goalie's uh, shoulder pad. Yeah, they were monstrous. That's right. I, I forgot that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's crazy. It's true. So he actually got his touchdown. He got his little bit of glory. So the Browns felt like they had some life. They were down by three after having been down by so much. But the third quarter wound down, and that touchdown fest was over, and the uh, Broncos went in the fourth quarter up by three. The Broncos had the ball, and on third down, L.A. did uh, – Elway, should say, did one of the things that only Elway could do, and very few other quarterbacks should even attempt. He escaped the rush on a third down, rolled left, and threw right across his body across the entire field and hit Vance Johnson for a 40-yard pass. Yeah, no other quarterback in the league. No one could do that. So he kept the drive going with that pass, and Elway capped off the drive when he hit Sammy Winder over the middle – who actually did a lot of juking, did the legwork, and ran in from 39, 39 yards out for the Broncos to go up 31-21. to 21. For the rest of the game, the Broncos' D just sat back and teed off on Kozar as he dropped back for pass attempt after pass attempt. A deflection off of one of Bernie's passes off a receiver ended up in Dennis Smith's hands for a second interception, and the Broncos put up two more Treadwell field goals for the final score, 37-21. to 21. And Elway definitely outplayed Kozar, and the game was done. It was so clear in that game that Elway just had our number, had the Browns' number. I shouldn't say our. Um, but, and that while Kozar had his moments and was a good NFL quarterback, he just wasn't quite good enough to right. get a team to the Super Bowl. He just, you, could, you could see it in that game. Like, he was kind of rumbling around and, and scratching and clawing. He was tough, and he was – they were just outmatched yeah. in the game. It yeah. wasn't really competitive in the second half. No, I, no, I agree. The, so the Broncos went on to the Super Bowl and down in the Big Easy, and they lost to Ringgold, Pennsylvania's own Joe Montana and the 49ers in the biggest blowout in Super Bowl history, 55-10. to 10. The Niners scored at least 13 points in every quarter. So we're not even going to go into that anymore, but the Broncos were the sacrificial horse at the altar of the 49ers in the <laughs> final yeah. Super Bowl. Yeah, um, was, and, and the Browns probably would have met the same fate. Probably not that much of a beatdown, I'd like to think, but they would have lost. The aftermath, the autopsy, if you will. So the next year, the 1990 season, like you said, it was the end of an era. The bottom dropped out of the, of the Browns. It was, it was as if their will was broken. Their second-year coach, Bud Carson, was fired after nine games, and the team was 2-7 and seven at that point. He was replaced by former quarterback Jim Schaffner. But the ship still sank, even with this new captain, and they won one more game, finishing 3-13. and 13. Yikes. 462 points was the most points any NFL team let up in the 90s. Okay. And the year before, they had a top-five defense, scoring defense. Exactly. That's what you call just a complete epic collapse. The, the negative 234-point differential was the third worst of any team in the 90s. Even worse when the Browns restarted in 1999 as an expansion team. So we'll leave it at that. After 89, Kozar would never have a winning record as a starter, including a short stint with Dallas and his final three years in Miami. Kozar actually got a Super Bowl as a backup in Dallas, which was kind of a joke. It's not the same. (laughs) No. (laughs) So so he went down with Miami, and the magic was gone for him, even Miami. He couldn't get into what he did at the U. But whatever, what happened to the team after that is the thing of a sad legend. So the Browns then hired a whiz kid who was a Bill Parcells disciple named Bill Belichick in 91. He coached him for five seasons and actually took him to one winning season in 94. They went 11-5, and five and they were in the playoffs, and they got beaten by the Steelers. But in 95, 
They won as many games as they lost the year before, and Belichick and the Browns were done in Cleveland for now. Owner Art Modell moved the team after the 95 season to Baltimore to feed those football-starved Colts fans. So just from a from an Ohio sports media perspective, I think you talk about it a little later too, but it was viewed, I mean, people maybe remember the LeBron thing when he left town, they were burning his yeah. jerseys. It was much 10 worse. times as bad. Yeah, much worse. And the thing was, it was over like a stadium deal because the, the, the municipal stadium was a dump and he thought he was going to get a new stadium like Jacobs Field, the Indians got. And it was one of those ugly like city versus owner deals. Yeah. And nobody in Cleveland, because again, they still had this, not only from the late 80s success, but from way back in the 50s and 60s, this feeling that they would never lose that team. And they were exactly. so important. I mean, Northeastern Ohio is like Western Pennsylvania. In the 70s and 80s, and even into the 90s, everybody, all the high schools, was, football was huge, and, and, and college was huge. And, and, right. And it was all about the Browns and Steelers. Yeah, and so, like, it was inconceivable. I mean, you lived in Pittsburgh for, what, 15-plus years? 16 years. 16 yeah, years. I mean, can you imagine if, like, the Roonies just, like, left and, and yeah. went to, you know, Phoenix or something? I mean, it'd be because they had so, nothing else going on. I mean, the city was right. dying, and it was like, exactly. that was it. Exactly. It was I brutal. know. So, sadly, those Baltimore fans would benefit from the same type of ugly departure they suffered in 83 when their, goal, when their Colts left for Indy. And then they changed the name, the newly dubbed Ravens, after the Edgar Allan Poe short story. And their 25 years since starting up as the Ravens in 96, they actually went to the playoffs 12 times and won two Super Bowls after the 2000-2012 season. So that really kind of hurts because they still had some former Browns on the team. Former coach Marty Schottenheimer took the Browns to the playoffs. In each of his four years, he was there as a head coach for the entire season and actually won 62% of his games as a head coach, which isn't too bad at all. So Marty would go on to to be the head coach for three other NFL teams. He coached the Chiefs for 10 years. To 10 wins a year, took him to the playoffs seven times, won AFC championship um, appearance, coached one year at Washington, landed in San Diego, where he led my Chargers to the playoffs twice in five years, including a 14-2 and season in 2006, which ended with a calamitous home loss to the Patriots, which I'm not going to talk about. So, you knew how to lose in the playoffs. Oh, <laughs> I know. His last year coaching was 2011 with the Virginia Destroyers of the UFL Wow. <laughs> he led to the UFL championship. At least he ended his career on kind of a high note. Marty would, unfortunately, after retirement, get diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 2011, a diagnosis which he kept out of the public eye. But in 2016, this became public knowledge. As of December 2018, he was still getting around and gave a nice little pre-recorded speech when Andy Reid surpassed him in wins as coach of the Chiefs. However, sadly, on February 3rd, 2021, his family announced he had put, been put into hospice care and died five days later at the age of 77. His son, Brian, continues to coach in the NFL in various capacities, but Marty was a very successful coach, and it was sad to hear of his passing. Ozzie Newsom is still the Browns' all-time leading receiver. Is the only player from those rosters to be elected to date to the Hall of Fame, except Bill Cower, who made it as a coach for the Steelers. So Ozzie made it to the Pro Bowl three times, was a first-team All-Pro twice, named to the 1980s All-Decade team for the NFL. And he, but he retired in 1990 and moved into the Browns' front office. And then he moved with the Ravens. He became the GM of the Ravens and won two Super Bowls with them as an executive. He was, uh, he was so good and so legendary that even that betrayal was something that uh, Browns fans were able to uh, overlook. But uh, yeah. definitely yeah, put a little a, bit of a, 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 a taint on his legacy. His years, I mean, you probably remember this, in the early 80s, he was like one of the best receivers in the league. I mean, he'd be up there yes. with like, you know, Winslow and Chandler and, and, and Joyner and those guys in San Diego catching like, you know, 80-plus balls, which tight ends yeah. weren't doing back then. Good. He had tons of talent. The rest of the team, I mean, there's a lot of good players, but they weren't Hall of Famers. You go through the um, Bills team that they played and beat in the playoffs, and it was like, yeah. you know, you've got Bruce Smith and Thurman Thomas and Jim Kelly. They didn't have like that level of superstar talent other than Ozzie. True. Going back to the shores of Lake Erie, the Browns were able to keep the name and the records linked to the uh, Browns, so they got to keep that in the divorce. 
and they, they rebooted in 1999 as an expansion team of sorts. Since then, as of the start of this 2020 season, they had just one winning season through 2019, which was a 9-7 and seven wild card year of 2002, where they lost in the first round against the hated Steelers. 36-33 on a late comeback orchestrated by former XFL MVP Tommy Maddox. They have had 12 different head coaches, 15 different leading passers, but all is not lost. The Browns drafted Heisman Trophy winner Baker Mayfield in 2018. He's had some sparks of brilliance and led them to the playoffs this year in 2020. They even beat the Steelers on the road in the wild card round this year for a measure of revenge. Unfortunately, they lost 22-17 to in the next round to the Kansas City Chiefs, but there's still hope for next year. And, and Mayfield so, did lead them to their first playoff victory in 30-plus years. I, yeah. I don't like the guy, but again, that's... Uh, yeah, right, exactly. But we'll see what he can do. Needless to say, you know, those the Browns of the, of the era that we're focused on um, came close, but were disappointing. So really, so there you have it. The late 80s Browns had assembled a solid team on both sides of the ball, only to hit the same freaking roadblock three out of four years. John Elway and the Broncos. Talk about a nemesis. Maybe if they, if they won or at least made it to one of those Super Bowls, Modell would have kept the Browns in Ohio, but I think we'll never know. Modell died in 2012 at the age of 87 as the owner of the Ravens, who dedicated the season to him. Now, on week one, all team members wore an art decal on their helmets. And for the rest of their season, they wore art patch on their left, left sleeve of their jersey. And they would go on to win the Super Bowl. The Sunday following Modell's death uh, was also the opening weekend of the 2012 NFL season. Now, each team playing a home game was asked to hold a moment of silence in memory of Modell. The Browns elected not to hold a moment of silence, but rather a brief read over the, uh, the PA system. At the request of Art's son, David, the Browns opted not to commemorate or even mention Modell during the pregame festivities to avoid all of the booing that would have come from Cleveland. I mean, but they would have booed. Yeah, they, they would have. Let's not forget, it was the Browns and their poor dedicated fans who were cursed by Elway and Modell. And then maybe Mayfield will be their savior. We will soon enough find out. So I think we're just going to wind it down and end it right there, Jeffrey. So I want to say it was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank uh, you so much for letting me uh, be a uh, guest host. Uh, it's been a blast. A lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. So that is all for this installment of the Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Peace out. The Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast is a Pug and Monkey production. Once again, I'd like to thank Lobo and his band Checky Brown for letting us use their song Hippie Bully as our theme song.